When it comes to improving Bible engagement, the physical form of the Bible is often overlooked. But could one of the biggest contributors to Bible disengagement be hiding right under our noses? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. show. I'm Alex Goodwin, joined by Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. And today we're going to be talking about something that we've touched on in our previous episodes, but haven't really dove into fully, which is the form of our modern Bible. If you've been around our work, you know that we make a big deal about the Bible's form and how it can either help or hinder our ability to read. Most of us have mental images of what a quote unquote regular Bible should look like. And if we're objective about it, the images are probably closer to something like a textbook or a dictionary than something that's made for reading. Our expectations of the Bible's format are actually conditioned by the Bible that we've inherited over the last 500 years or so. But it wasn't always this way. And it's worth taking a look at the Bible's history and the not inconsequential ways that it's been shaped by human hands. Yeah, it's interesting, Alex. I think it's a thing that we don't often think about, the fact that the Bible is a cultural artifact. I mean, the Bible is a thing that we've created. Any Bible that anybody has was created by somebody, and it has taken a particular shape and form in a certain kind of presentation. And this is all involving human decision-making. So when we purchase a Bible— we're buying a product that has been shaped and formed by human hands. And all kinds of decisions have been made in the design arena, in the formatting area. Paul, you and I were both Bible publishers. And so we know what it was like to make the decisions that shape particular Bibles. Uh, what were some of the main ones that you remember? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first came into the position <laughs> that one of the startling things for me was having teams of people that were working on creating Bibles. And when it would get down to the design format of an actual page, they would come across my desk for approval. And it became very clear to me that when I looked at these designs, that oftentimes the design was led to enhance and point to the note system, either by shading the area or putting some sort of fancy design about it. And so the text was really given secondary place. And it was a perfect example that every day in our shop, decisions were being made about what to do with the Bible. That's really interesting. You know, I worked for the nonprofit Bible publishers, so we were always looking for ways to cut costs. So all the things that go into a Bible page, like how much white space is there? Is there margin? What's the letting between lines? What's the size of the font? Is it one column or two column? All these things, I was always getting pressure kind of from the production department to to make the Bible fewer pages, more words per page. And, and there was a cost consciousness, but I was the one who had to try to defend the other side of the equation that said, yeah, but that ruins reading. It ruins engagement. And so there was this kind of tug of war going on uh, between these two competing pressures uh, within Bible publishing. It's interesting if you think about the history of the Bible. The Bible hasn't always looked like what we know as a Bible today. And it's another thing for us to keep in mind is that we have freedom to design Bibles the way we want for whatever goals we want. I mean, the Bible started out as handwritten scrolls on papyrus that most people experienced only by hearing them read aloud. 
And then as the Bible transitioned into a codex or book form, the material was animal skin that it was written on. They could only fit a small part of the Bible into a particular codex because the skin was so thick. It's not like wood paper. And so as we go through the history of the Bible, we find that it's actually late in the game that we come to what we know as the modern Bible. And there was a particular set of decisions made in the production of what we would call a Bible today that came, as I said, later in the Bible's history. And those decisions were made for reasons that don't always align with great readability or engagement. Yeah, for sure. I think where this really came home to me, not only from my publisher's position, but a couple of years ago, I had a chance to visit the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., which I highly recommend. And for whatever reason, while I was looking at all the thousands of displays there, I think on three different floors, the thought that came to my mind were all of the decisions that were being made to produce these different various forms of the Bible. And I kind of began to categorize them in my mind, like this was a good decision. It was a good decision to move hmm. the Bible from Latin and, you know, the original languages into the modern vernaculars. It was a bad decision to do other things. And then there were actually decisions represented there that cost people their lives. So, yeah. you know, to your point, uh, it, it really is a cultural artifact. So tell us a little bit about how this history, particularly of the modern Bible, how did that get started? Yeah, I think of, of all the changes that have taken place, uh, the, the most consequential, really the colossal change was the addition of chapters and verses. And really two men were responsible for these changes. We might call them the fathers of the modern Bible. The first one was Stephen Langton, who was an English church leader. He was a professor at the University of Paris. He was a prolific Bible scholar and a, pro a prolific writer of commentaries, primarily Old Testament commentaries. And he became uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And at about 1200 AD, he invented almost single-handedly the chapter system to help readers of his commentaries quickly reference his texts. Which is late, right? 1200 AD, like the Bible's been a certain way for a long time, over a thousand years. And, and then all of a sudden this, this innovation comes into play. Yeah, it starts to make you wonder, how did people possibly use these Bibles that didn't even have chapter breaks within them? Right. And we, we consider that so essential. Yeah. That's that, crazy. That, yeah, that question gets asked to me oftentimes in my presentations. And I have kind of a snarky response. I have a, a good response, but my snarky response is, I don't know. How did Jesus do it? Right. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. And Glenn, you would say, I think, from your writings that people knew the story so well that they would reference it uh, by a particular story, you know, in the book of Luke, you know, somewhere in between the time that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and what have you. And people would know. Yeah, and we'll talk about this in a future episode when we talk about, um, you know, how do we get a new form of the Bible and we talk about solutions. Um, that'll be an issue that we'll talk about for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and it's worth just reiterating that he created this chapter system to aid in a reference work that he was that he was making. It wasn't anything tied to the natural literature or the Bible or anything like that. It was specifically just kind of breaking books up into uniform chunks, right? So that he could easily point people to a, a certain chunk of a book that he would be writing his commentary on. Yeah, and that's that's very close to the goal of what we want to get at today is that the design decisions for the Bible itself, the actual presentation of the Bible, um, those decisions reflect certain goals. And so what what we notice and what has been kind of coming to, to light more and more lately is that the addition of chapters and verses created problems in addition to creating this very easy to look up reference work. So it was great for the goal of finding a passage of the Bible more quickly for his right. commentaries. But, but you think back, well, wait a minute, what was lost in that decision? And so as we think about what the Bible is, it's a collection of books that are different kinds of literature. So what happened to the literature of the Bible when we added chapter breaks? Well, it obliterated that literature because suddenly the whole book, which is really a collection of books in the Bible, they all get divided into sections that are roughly the same length because that was the goal. It wasn't like, let's read carefully. What are the natural literary sections of this book? Where's a place where we can make a break so these all come out to be roughly the same length for a commentary system? And they didn't pay attention to the breaks. I always find it pretty humorous that the very first chapter break in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, comes at exactly the wrong place. I mean, it yeah. was the very first break, and they couldn't get that one right. It's yeah. I mean, it it's it funny. is funny, right? There's two creation stories, and the chapter break comes before, just a little bit, a few lines before the end of the first creation story. I'm like, yeah. wait, if you're reading the text, why would you do that? Why would you put the break there if you're reading what you're what you're adding the numbers to? And so it's just funny. And that, of course, happens other places. Sometimes the breaks are in appropriate place. But either way, it makes the Bible look like a, a collection of books that have these sections all of this length, kind of like an encyclopedia of articles, when actually some of the, the sections are much longer. Some can be shorter. And those actual natural literary um, units are broken up because the chapters come in in wrong places. Isaiah 53, which people reference all the time by number, as if that's a thing by itself. Isaiah 53 and this prophecy of Jesus, the suffering servant. But Isaiah 53, that oracle that's contained in that whole chapter actually begins back in Isaiah 52. So there, there's a misreading. If you start reading at Isaiah 53, you're missing the first introductory section of that oracle of the prophet Isaiah. And this happens all throughout the Bible. So they are not built for a great reading experience. They're built for referencing the Bible in an easy way. And I think in many ways, it's been noticed that chapters also function as stop signs. So you're reading the Bible and you get to a chapter break. It just, they're usually big, bold numbers they kind of tell you, wow, you've read a big chunk. Now is the place to stop. No matter if you're in the middle of a story, the middle of an argument in one of Paul's letters, they're just not natural stopping places. But the, the visual format is telling you, you can stop right here. 
even though that isn't the place the author would have intended you to stop reading that section. So there are reading engagement problems with the adding, which is a human decision to format the Bible a particular way. It's not like the Bible dropped from heaven in this format. It was a thing we did to the Bible to make it useful for one purpose. But my contention is it cost us for other goals or purposes we might have for the Bible, like reading big and understanding the author's own purpose. Yeah. And you, you know, if you're reading through the Bible and you see these chapter numbers, any other book in your entire life that you read, <laughs> chapters are normal places to stop, right? Like authors yes. write their books and structure them around chapters. And so you think, okay, you know, I'm reading Harry Potter and I finished the chapter and that, that makes sense to stop there because you know, the next chapter is going to be about something new, that sort of thing. Uh, but that's that's not how the Bible works. And so it's this false impression that we give to people that, hey, this chapter number is actually a, a good place to stop for the day. Yeah, it's interesting to just do a thought experiment and say, what if Tolkien didn't just gave in a manuscript that just went on continuously and right. somebody else said, I want to make a Tolkien commentary. So let's just break this up into random bits and put numbers on them. Um, what would Tolkien have thought of what they had done to his work? Right? And there was no consulting with Bible authors, but this is a good place to to put a break. Yeah. yeah and I mean, to piggyback on that, contemporary authors didn't make the mistake of turning all of their chapters into single pages. Right. <laughs> right. There's right. usually five, six pages, a dozen pages, and the Bible... Uh, very seldom do you find a chapter that's longer than a page. And so really... People, to your point, Glenn, are uninvited to continue reading. And I think yeah. we all remember the, the the university professor that we heard about that used to say to his students that he'd give them a formula for making the next book that they read the worst read of their life. And the formula was read a page <laughs> a day. One yeah. page a day, yeah. Read a page a day of anything. And you'll you'll soon be bored and and put it down. And I think that's what people have been doing with the Bible for years. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, and the, one of the main things is, I think because every Bible people have ever seen have these chapter numbers and chapter breaks, you start to think, this is just normal. This is what the Bible is. It's natural. And it it sends a message to your brain. This is the kind of book the Bible is. And it's a signal as to what I'm supposed to do with the Bible or not do. And you're supposed to use it like an encyclopedia, not like reading a novel or reading song lyrics or reading a letter completely. And so it changes what we think the Bible is. So we have to move on uh, to to verses because we can get hung up even just talking about chapters. But so what about verses? Where did, where did verses come from? Um, I always grew up kind of thinking that chapters and verses went together like burgers and fries or something. Um, but but they're actually verses were 300 years younger approximately than than chapters. So the chapters system was around for a while. And verses were only invented because of uh, a French printer and a classical scholar named Robert Asten. And he was working on a Bible concordance. So if you're not familiar with concordances, it's another reference manual type of tool that's primarily used for looking up where specific words appear in scripture. So if I needed to find everywhere where, um, 
you know, the word grace, for example, is used. I could look it up in a concordance and find a list of references. So understandably, Esten needed a system with even more precision than Langdon's chapter system, which, you know, would take several paragraphs at a time, for example. He needed people to be able to zoom in and, and immediately find a specific word. And so he used Langdon's chapter system as a framework to work within, but then created a new subset of numbers within that, uh, which, which he called verses. And I think it's worth saying that he didn't, you know, hole up in his study for months on end, discerning where the best places to put these chapter numbers were. He actually did this while he was traveling on a 300-mile journey from, from Paris to Lyon. The historical record is a little bit fuzzy about how he actually actually did this. Some people say that he was actually on horseback, you know, kind of bumbling along with the Bible in his lap, <laughs> to, you know, ticking off, off verse numbers. But the, uh, the more reasonable explanation is that he, he did this in uh, inns and other shelters along the way while he was resting from his journey, you know, maybe ticking off... Uh, several chapters worth of verse numbers before bedtime or something like that. But he finished in 10 days. And so the, you, you think about the sheer volume of work that he had to do in 10 days. And this was not a, uh, a labor where he really paid super close attention to the text and the contours of it and the, the content. But it was, it was mainly just, you know, re- every sentence or two, you just add a number. It, it was just very kind of speed driven. And, and so that's, that's how the verses became paired with chapters. And I think it's worth saying that chapters and verses do serve a helpful purpose for looking things up, right? And they could have remained a niche resource for scholars and people writing things like con- commentaries and concordances. But at some point along the way, somebody decided that they needed to become a standard element in every single Bible. And this was close to the time of the printing press. And so we were just off to the races um, with with chapter and verse Bibles. Yeah, exactly. They got incorporated to every edition that followed this time period. So it became the new thing. Every Bible that gets printed on these new printing presses now is going to use this innovative new system of chapter and verses put together for the very first time. And so every Bible that's, you know, there's all these new vernacular translations happening in this same period. And every single one of them incorporates this new system. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a church historian at Yale named Yaroslav Pelikan who wrote a book called The Bible of the Reformation and the Reformation of the Bible. And hmm. he says one of the things that the innovation of verses in particular did was it changed absolutely what people thought they were supposed to do with the Bible. He says proof texting was born in this Reformation era Bible that people discovered for the first time you could you could try to find a doctrine in the Bible and then list the verses that prove this doctrine. And of course, this is the time of the great Protestant Catholic debate and divide happening. And so there was a lot of arguing about Bible texts. And a chapter and verse Bible was perfect for these kinds of arguments. Um, so long as you can take these verses out of their context and just list them as a specific reference without reference to the material around them, which is of course, one of the big problems. So you're, you're proof texting, but the thing that a proof texting system never does is take into account the context of every single one of those references. So you say, I want to teach justification by faith, and you list chapter and verse where all this is taught. 
But you don't bother in each one of those cases to say, oh, this was in Paul's letter and he was making this bigger point. Here's where this sentence came into his bigger argument. That doesn't happen when you're proof texting. So the introduction of verses isolated statements from the Bible out of their context, historical, literary, cultural, anything else that's happening, you just read a statement and it, it looks for all the world like it's meant to, meant to be read by itself. And that's what verses have done. And that's ever since the introduction of this innovation to the Bible format, we've oftentimes just thought, this is what the Bible is for. It's broken up into these little pieces so I can find the best pieces for what I want. A little verse to encourage me, a verse to argue with somebody, a verse to reinforce some point I already believe. But we read the Bible as a collection of verses rather than reading it as a collection of whole books in different kinds of literary forms. So it absolutely changed the Bible from a literary collection of books to a collection of isolated spiritual statements, about 30,000 of them. Yeah. I think you uh, at one point uh, called them uh, scripturettes. Right. Right. <laughs> right. If a scripture is a writing, a whole writing, a scripturette is a perfect name for a verse. Yep. So, Glenn, I, I'm curious when you talk about the dynamic of, and, and we see this all the time, of authors who will make a statement and then there's a parenthesis with three or four different references used and then they go on and then there's another parenthesis and usually at the end of that they'll say so my point is that this is biblical uh and as a as a reader really what you're being asked to do is just trust me trust me yeah. i read i read those three texts right. And right. they, they completely support my text, which is really kind of a, an insult to the reader in, in my estimation. But my question is this, is, is this an overstatement then to say that the evolution of chapters and verses actually led to systematic theology as we think of it today? Was systematic theology a thing before chapters and verses? Yeah, absolutely. There's a connection there because you can't really have a systematic theology uh, until you do something like this to the Bible. Um, because the Bible, I mean, you have to think about it. what was God's intention in giving us a Bible that wasn't a systematic theology? He right. apparently wanted us to read letters from a leader to a church, stories, whole stories about the life of Jesus, song lyrics. Proverbs, the history of Israel. He wanted us to read these things and then put them together in a coherent way. But he didn't give us a systematic theology, which he could have done if he wanted to. So yeah, it's a product. And we think that's the highest level of Bible knowledge. But I think the highest level of Bible knowledge is to know the Bible on its own terms, the Bible that God actually gave us. So the chapter and verse system, I think, unknowingly to people kind of changed their idea of what the Bible is and what they're supposed to do with it. Yeah. So, so after the development of chapters and verses 500 years ago or so, it kind of opened the door for this avalanche of extra additives, right? Of Bible quote unquote helps, which can be helpful, but a little bit overwhelming at times. So Paul, talk about that development. Yeah, it's sort of the uh, Pandora box effect. <laughs> yeah. 
once the door was opened to add chapters and verses, it was like we couldn't help ourselves. And so we began adding center column references, red letters, footnotes, something that people oftentimes don't think about, which is topical headings. Which yeah, section headings. Yeah. Section headings, which for a person who doesn't hasn't read the Bible before, they can be spoiler alerts. Yeah. <laughs> David kills Goliath. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. yeah. And then, you know, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Those are all, right. all things that if you're reading the story, completely nonsensical to the author, you know, writing to build suspense and then you spill you know, the, the plot line before it before it even happens. So yeah. all all of those all of those things, you know, took place. And uh, as we've been saying throughout this entire pod podcast, uh, something that we just kind of take for granted because it's the water that we swim in and the air that we breathe, that this is the Bible and this is the way that we should interact with it. And so the reality is and we need to do an analysis of all the different ways that the Bible has been impacted by chapters and verses, both positively, yeah. uh, but also but also negatively. We fixed one problem, or at least two men's problems, Langdon and Asnet. <laughs> but in, right. in fixing their problems, we created a whole host of other problems, which is kind of the way things work when we create things. We, we created pesticides, right, to right. get rid of bugs and what have you. But now we have a pesticide problem. And yep. so we just need to be honest about those things. So, you know, a little analysis is is in order. Yeah, yeah, it's a parallel, I think, with something that happened once in the automotive industry. It's known there as the Thunderbird problem. When the original Ford Thunderbird came out in the 1950s, it was a sleek, very cool, looked very different from most other cars that were being produced. And there was a group of people who fell in love with it, and it kind of became Thunderbird clubs, people who would buy Thunderbirds, and they'd get together and talk about them, drive them around together. Uh, but then Ford started doing something of adding features, as it's called. This is very parallel to what's happened with the Bible. We, it's like what you described, Alex. Over the centuries, we just keep adding more features to the Bible. This yep. is what Ford did with the Thunderbird. And they kept saying, oh, if this is good, more of this would be better. And we'll do this and we'll add this feature. And, and before you know it, the Thunderbird didn't look like the Thunderbird anymore. And the fan clubs rose up in rebellion. And there was hmm. this avalanche of letters and contacts with Ford saying, what have you done to the car we love? We don't even recognize it anymore. Will you please give us back the Thunderbird? And so that became a thing in the automotive industry. Like, don't do the Thunderbird problem when people fall in love with something that you've put out. And I think that's exactly what we've done with the Bible. All with good intentions. We're going right. to add more and more notes, right? If 10,000 study notes are good, 20,000 or 30,000 are, are better. And let's add more reference helps and more features. And before you know it, you've totally overwhelmed the Bible text itself, and you can hardly see what it was originally meant to be. So the Bible, I would say, has a Thunderbird problem, and it's interfered with the people's ability to get to know God's Word in the way that He originally gave it to us and intended for us to know it. 
Yeah. It kind of creates a, a TMI effect, right? Too much information. Yep. You open it up and you're just uh, viscerally overwhelmed with the sheer amount of content on the page. I know, Paul, you like to talk about how you were talking with a high schooler and um, he was talking about his study Bible at home and he was saying, so so do I read the notes first and then the texts with you know having the background context of the notes or do I read the text first and then the notes? Am I allowed to turn the page before I le- read everything? Like it's just kind of this information overload state and kind of anxiety producing for a lot of people and just an unpleasant experience for the eyes, right? Absolutely. I think the word that he used was it made him tense. Yeah. And when he read Immerse, which of course is our Bible where we've removed artificial elements, he said for the first time he was able to actually read and relax, mm-hmm. which, which we take as uh, as a very positive thing. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the word kind of to start, you know, wrapping this up a little bit, I think the word that describes the modern Bible is that it's an excellent reference tool. And yep. that's that's not surprising because the two men who created it, that's what their goal was in the case of both chapters and verses. And I think the main point that we can kind of draw from this brief history of the modern Bible is that what we design the Bible for is what it will be used for. Yep. So if we design the Bible to be used like a reference book, where you just look up a thing, get some additional help, and then jump back out again— or jump to different places in the Bible, that's what the Bible will be used for by people. But what if you designed the Bible for something else, for what's been lost in the Bible that God originally gave us? So I think the introduction of the modern reference Bible led us down a certain path that people think this is the best thing you can do with the Bible, or the only thing you can do with the Bible, which was not designed to be a reader's Bible. Um, and I think that's the question that we have before us now is, is there a different possibility for a new and better future? Because one thing, the, the reference and the, the, you know, the information we're learning about research on what people do with the Bible is they are not reading it and they're not understanding the big picture. Yeah, I, think, uh, I think it's interesting what you said, Glenn, about what happened with the Thunderbird that it actually led to a grassroots revolt. <laughs> uh, right. People said, give us back our streamlined, you know, simpler version of the Thunderbird. And uh, it makes makes one wonder if maybe we're due for another kind of grassroots revolt with the Bible, where yeah. we say we're going to strip away all of those distractions. We're going to strip away this artificial exoskeleton that's been laid over the top of the Bible. It's interesting that in that era, right after verse numbers were added, uh, that John Locke, a philosopher, a famous British philosopher, came down hard on the decision and said, you know, this is not inconsequential. Uh, And it's all chopped and minced up now. And it all looks like individual aphorisms, I think was the word. Mm, Yeah, exactly. that, That he used. So what's encouraging to me is, is we've traveled around the country and we've made this presentation and we've shared this with people. First of all, they're shocked. Right. That's the, you don't that's learn this response. in Sunday school. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a little bit of uh, how come nobody bothered to share this with us? Right. 
But then they, they kind of brighten to the idea that now there may be an alternative. And the alternative, of course, is not that we ditch reference Bibles, which everybody says still serve a, a great purpose in scholarship and other things, along with all of our other reference tools. But it seems that we're in an era where people are now open to the idea that just as we created this cultural artifact, 500 years, the chapter and verse Bible, that we could now step back in and create another cultural artifact, really kind of go back to somewhat the original cultural artifact and create something that was far more readable, might we even say enjoyable, Hmm. Uh, and a whole new category that we would call, you know, the reader's Bible. And we'll talk about that more in uh, in, in some of our upcoming podcasts. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. We covered a lot today, very quickly. It was kind of a flyby history, right, of the modern Bible and its implications. Just a reminder that you can find all of our episodes and show notes at thebiblereset.com. And you can actually click on the links to individual episodes and there are comment areas at the bottom. So you likely have questions or, or need more clarity or just want to talk through some of the things that we talked about today. So feel free to submit questions or comments there. And uh, we look forward to interacting with you on some of those things. Don't forget to rate and review us on your podcast provider, which helps other people find the podcast. And uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next one.